Hello, Insiders, and a very pleasant good afternoon to you, wherever you may be. This is your host, Bruce Ash, along with my good friend and Inside Track co-host, Ed Wilkinson, welcoming you to a special Woke Capital Dictatorship edition of Inside Track. Thanks for tuning in today, wherever you are, in your car or uh, running errands, um, working in the backyard, or just sitting beside your radio at home. We welcome your calls today at the Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus Hotline, 790-2040. We have another extraordinary show for you today. After our first break, we'll chat with street street sports columnist David Layton with a look back at one of Tucson's most successful mayors, Lou Davis. After the break, best-selling author Stephen Sokup, whose new book, The Dictatorship of Woke Capital, How Political Correctness Captured Big Business. He'll be our guest. His book is more relative today than ever before. This portion of the show is brought to you by my co-host, Eb Wilkinson, and Gary Imus from Imus Wilkinson Investment Management, whose baby step approach to your wealth management is designed so you never have to solely depend on socialized security. Eb manages family wealth for our family and does a great job. Call Eb at 777-1911 and let him help you also. Eb, you understand big business as well as anyone I know. Our guest during the second half of the show today, Stephen Sokup, will be talking to us about his book, The Dictatorship of Woke Capital. I am looking forward to this. So... ESG, environmental social governments, um, that's the buzzword today in, in today's corporate world. Has ESG eclipsed the interest of shareholders? Absolutely. In what way? Well, number one, the job of any corporate, uh, any publicly traded corporation, the job of the board is to maximize shareholder value. And so when you get uh, companies, mutual funds that go out, say, we're going to only invest in socially responsible firms, what defines socially responsible? If you are the Catholic diocese in San Francisco, right. you're not going to want uh, guns, uh, you're not going to want uh, alcohol, you're not going to want tobacco. Okay, But you're fine with companies that uh, work with abortion unless you're a really hard right-leaning Capital, mm-hmm. you know, a Catholic. If you're out in Raleigh, North Carolina, and you have the Catholic diocese there that's investing, look, their people work in tobacco, their people work in bourbon. You better have those securities in your investment portfolio. So there's all sorts of different definitions, and there's no one definition that fits everybody. So if I'm trying to do my best as your advisor, Okay, I need to say, okay, what's the best way that legally, morally, we can do what we need to do to take care of Bruce and meet his goals? It's not one of these funds. It's not one of these companies. They're taking, they, uh, let's move on. I'm going to say a bad word. All right. Let's talk some about the news from this past busy week. Joe Biden stumbled walking up 
the stairs of Air Force One yesterday, a very troubling image. I mean, all kidding aside, that is a troubling image. The day before, he repeatedly referred to Kamala Harris as President Harris. Does he know something we don't? Slip sliding away. The stumble yesterday as Sleepy Joe boarded Air Force One was nothing, though, compared to his pointless statement earlier this week about Vladimir Putin being a killer. He is a killer. We all know Putin is a killer. He ran the freaking KGB, didn't he? Chest pounding by this weak old man is seen by many as weakness in American foreign policy. It's just not smart to poke the bear who potentially, along with India and the Quad Nations, could forge an alliance of sorts with America to halt the aggression of the Chinese communists, which Russia is just as wary of as we are and the rest of our allies. The final stumble-bumble of the week, the U.S.-China summit in Alaska, which turned into an embarrassing dress-down by their skillful Chinese diplomatic foes, who explained that America has no moral high ground to criticize the CCP about human rights. Our Secretary of State got socked in the jaw and was staggered. Round one was a victory for the communists. The CCP Thursday has rebuked LinkedIn This Microsoft-owned company is the only American social network allowed to operate in Red China. To do so, the company in advance had to agree to censor any messages against the communist dictatorship on its platform. Well, I guess they weren't doing as much censoring as their masters intended. The communists who control all speech in that totalitarian dictatorship country feel not enough is being censored, so Bill Gates and company is in hot water. They got a lot of splaining to do. Thera Stockman, also writing for the New York Times, wrote an opinion piece yesterday in The Gray Lady titled, Rising to the, China, Rising to the Challenge of China. Although she wrote that America has its own problems to overcome with inequality, she suggests that America was awakened to the Chinese threat during the Trump administration and Trump's implementing tariffs and other members' measures to prevent Chinese theft of intellectual properties has helped. She advocates Joe Biden continue the president's policies. The Ohio Attorney General and 20 other state attorneys general have filed suit against the Biden administration over the $1.9 trillion so-called COVID relief bill, which their lawsuit contends violates the rights of states to tax without interference by the federal government. With over $350 billion of Porkapalooza money primarily to bail out corrupt and bloated blue states, Senate leader Schumer added a provision at the last moment in their negotiations for that big bill to prevent states from lowering their state income tax and using stimulus swag to fund their operations. Hey, Attorney General Brnovich, are you part of this lawsuit? I hope so. Also in the news, veteran diplomat William J. Burns was confirmed without any opposition this week to become CIA director. Republicans have performed admirably, allowing the new administration to form their government so efficiently. Far different, far, far different, when you think about it, treatment than the same Democrats gave President Trump four years ago. 
The situation at the U.S. southern border continues to deteriorate. Yes, Joe, there is a border. Sovereign nations do have borders. This morning, the White House announced it would fly illegals at taxpayer expense to red states like Montana, North and South Dakota, plus other northern tier states. Eb, I'm sure that's going to work out just fine. Absolutely. Lastly, Democrat war drums continue to beat on engaging the nuclear option to end the Senate filibuster. Leader McConnell, yes, that's the same guy who 30, who 30 days ago so many conservatives said was their mortal enemy. Mitch McConnell promised a scorched earth Senate if the Democrats follow through on their plan for one party absolute rule. He has promised to make the Senate a wasteland where none of the nation's work will get done, including any of the Democrat leftist agenda until the filibuster is restored. I applaud his proclamation. You should also. Because whether you like cocaine Mitch, he is the one man who has the ability to deliver on his threats. You can also be completely confident he will drop his own nuclear device if Kirsten Cinema or Joe Manchin renege on their promise to retain the filibuster. Okay, Mr. Producer, we are due for our first break. When we return, Eb and I will talk to David Layton from the Arizona Daily Star about his great column, Street Smarts. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. Jamie Kipper and her father, Gary Kipper, from Tucson Iron and Metal. What are they going to see when they come through the gates? So when they come on in, they'll see our building up front. People have free reign to then go out and look in the yard. So it's not a typical scrapyard with a ton of big machinery. We have a couple of forklifts around, but that's about it just to help move material. So when you come in, it's all organized by material, whether it's square tubing, angle iron, roofing, and then there is a pile in the back, which is still organized and easy to get through, but that's stuff that comes over from the scrap. So we're unique in that we get stuff in from the scrap, which a lot of artists and people will like or reuse, whether it's a sink that someone needs for their house, We sell literally anything made of metal. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard. 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday. It's termite season. Bugs fear the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control. Go blue at Essential Pest Control. We'll eliminate those bugs, bees, and termites. And stop paying too much to that national provider. Buy local for great service and affordable rates. Call Essential Pest Control because termites fear the blue. Call for the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control, 886-3029. That's 886-3029. Or check online at EssentialPest.com. Ask not... What your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Wouldn't it be great if political leaders could create that country again? Learn how to do exactly that, one family at a time, with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. Call me, Eb Wilkinson, imuswilkinson.com, 777-1911, 777-1911. Welcome back to Inside Track. This portion of today's show brought to you by my friends Jamie and Gary Kipper from Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus and Essential Pest Control. These are two great locally owned family businesses you can depend upon. I do, and so should you. David Layton is a historian, a good guy also, an author of the history of 
Hughes Missile Plant in Tucson, 1947-1960. He has been featured on PBS, ABC, Travel Channel, and various radio shows, including Inside Track, here back for his <laughs> second visit. Uh, hey, we're pleased to welcome you back. Uh, I look I look forward to your Street Smarts columns uh, whenever you write them, and uh, you recently wrote a column devoted to former Tucson Mayor Lou Davis. Wow. Yeah, he was quite a guy. He did he did quite a bit of stuff in Tucson while he was here. Yeah. So um, it seems hard to believe that Tucson ever elected a real estate developer. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, but it did happen, didn't it? How, how did that happen? How did a Republican make it to be the mayor? Um, I, I think uh, overall he had some good ideas. Um, I think he was well-liked. Um, I think his ideas were across the aisle, so he had Democrat support as well. I mean, I think if you come forward and you got good ideas at a time when uh, Tucsonans really want some change, I think you can get a get a guy who's um, got Tucson's best interests. Mm-hmm. And it's, it isn't so so much political as, as maybe it is today. Um, I, I think that had a lot to do with it. Tucsonans were looking for some change. He wanted to make those changes. He had a good reputation. Uh, among Tucsonans, and, and that's what got him elected. I mean, as I mentioned in the article, uh, when I did an interview with his uh, daughter, Andrea Davis, uh, a lot of his friends were Democrats, and they were they switched over temporarily to the Re- Republican Party uh, to make sure he got elected. Because so, he was in a contested Democratic primary, uh, excuse me, a contested Republican primary, wasn't he? I believe so, And yeah. that's why they had to switch over. Uh, but then winning in that election... Uh, that you know that was still tough because Tucson was not really a very Republican town in those days. No, I mean it was probably more Republican than it, than it is now. Right. Um, but I, I just think it's it, he had general general good ideas, and I think just think it, it crossed over, and people were willing to give him a shot. Um, he has the uh, unique um, situation that he was the last mayor to serve, I think it was two years. The two-year terms, yeah. Yeah, and then when they changed the Tucson City Charter, he became the first mayor to serve four years. Yeah, he was a he was a, a, a guy who had um, kind of an interesting background, came from Pennsylvania, right. uh, you wrote, and, you know, didn't seem to be the sort of guy that was destined to be the mayor uh, uh, of a town, uh, you know, had small jobs and so on, but came to Tucson um, and and started in the property development business. Yeah, he was. Uh, he developed some subdivisions and worked in real estate. And you know, he he kind of you know he was successful. And I think it just his his intentions were he wanted to see Tucson do well, mm-hmm. and that and that came across. But yeah, he did have an interesting youth. I mean, he traveled all across the northern uh, part of the United States. I mean, selling, doing things like selling uh, fire stoves. To, to housewives, you know, in the northern states. So he did quite a few jobs. Um, one of the things I don't think I put in the article was he worked in the shipbuilding uh, area as well, or what didn't make it into the article, I should say. So he had a varied background, did, did quite a few things. Um, and, you know, kind of kind of interesting, you know, the stuff he did, you know. He was not a boisterous man. I remember him as, as a young kid. He came to our synagogue at Temple Emmanuel uh, one Sunday morning for, for an assembly. And I was just so impressed because here was this guy, a Jewish guy, who was mayor of Tucson. And, right, you right. Know, we, the Jewish population was very small in those days and you know not very prominent in, in many respects. And 
But it just seemed to be such a, a, a great thing that this guy was mayor. And yeah. Very soft-spoken. You know, yeah. not braggadocio, very, very low-key and, and very kind. Was a sharp dresser, but not flashy. You know, he was in a, um, uh, you know, coat and tie. Uh, and, you know, when, in those days, people dressed up a little bit more. Right, right. Especially yeah. on airplane flights. Right. <laughs> yeah. <I'm kidding. laughs> that was a big deal back in the day. So... A lot of things happened during his terms as mayor, didn't it? You, you wrote uh, in your article, during his six-year tenure, Davis advocated for improved city services, encompassing the paving of roads and the expansion of the library, parks, and water systems. Right. Because we were really in, in the midst of a huge increase in population you know, growing in all directions, and we needed those kinds of things, didn't we? Yeah. Um, in the 1950s, 1960s, you're looking at uh, a large growth in population in the old Pueblo. So the city government needs to kind of keep up with that, you know. If you have the home development developing east, for example, you got to create parks and, and right. libraries and, and create a situation where people have access to all these things. And, and that was one of the things he did was kind of make it more livable, you know, providing services and stuff like that. So, yeah, he, he, did, he did quite a bit when he was mayor. You write that he said uh, in a quote by him, no one is going to keep quiet for too long about dust, chuck holes, dark streets, promised sewers, delayed trash control, uh, trash collection, snafu'd water bills, waste of money, and inefficiency. Right, and he, he's spot on. You know, I, I think it's almost logical. That's a public servant. That's not right. so much a politician, politician, but a public servant. Right, and, and he did more than just talk. I mean, a lot of politicians talk, but he actually did stuff. You know, so yeah. I mean, when you got somebody who's actually doing something. Versus politicians that just talk about doing things, he he, was, he, he did a lot. So so the other thing um, that I wanted to mention, um, and and for those of you who've lived in Tucson a long time, maybe grew up here, uh, Speedway was referred to by many, including nationally and internationally, as the ugliest street in America. But yep. it was really it was that was Lou Davis's comment mm -hmm. that really got blown up. Talk Wasn't about a that. Big photo on one of the national on Life, mag on Life magazine. Life magazine. Yeah. 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 Most people don't know um, a lot of longtime Tucsonans will know that 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 Speedway was called the ugliest street in America, and they'll often credit it to Life magazine. Right. But. In 1970, I think it was July 24th, 1970, I believe, was the, the issue. I have it at home. Um, but it was actually um, Lou Davis who actually made the statement in 1962. And then by the time 1970 came around, we had a new mayor. We had Mayor uh, Jim Corbett. Jim Corbett, yeah. And when... The thigh biter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> oh, my God. And so... When it came out, they, they said the mayor said it. He denied it because he never had never said it right. and probably didn't even know where it came from. It was just a uh, comment made eight years earlier. So he denied it. So at that point, what people did is just credit Life Magazine and say that Life Magazine said that Speedway was the ugliest street in America, but it was actually a quote from Lou Davis. Um, you know, being a developer and stuff like that, obviously he's aware of how things look and how they appear. And so he was the one that actually made that comment, I think, to kind of make people aware of the fact that, you know, we need to pay attention to this. We need to do something with it. And it, it, I mean, it, it was in 62 as it was in 70. It was, it was a pretty ugly street. I, I don't know if it really was an ugly street in America, but 
It was it was pretty bad. It could have been on a list someplace. This is also interesting from your article. And for those of you who don't necessarily pay that much attention to you know the the star in different articles, David really writes a quality column. Uh, whenever he uh, uh, you know is a participant uh, uh, there at at the star, um, and um, this this was so interesting. Davis also pushed for cleaning up the city's increasing air pollution and campaign for early purchases of land for parks and open spaces before unrestricted housing and commercial sprawl made them financially unobtainable. So, future, you know, looking toward the future mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, he, he had a vision uh, working in real estate, I think, really kind of opened his eyes to, oh, my God, things are changing. If we don't buy the property now for parks and libraries, it's going to be too expensive later on. And I think that was a very, um, you know, having the foresight to do that has led to a, a higher quality of life for us now. Yeah. You know, many libraries you go to, especially on the east side of town, um, and parks are there because he had the foresight to buy it ahead of time, hold on to the property. In some cases, they didn't develop it, but to do that, and that's kind of where we're at. I was also going to mention that um, some people might be familiar with uh, Pat Paris. Uh, Pat Paris is the name from Channel 9. He does a I think it's a once every two weeks or something like that uh, show called Absolutely Arizona. Mm. I'll be doing some filming uh, this week in relation to the Speedway story. Oh. oh. So I don't know when it's coming out, but this Wednesday we'll be doing some filming on Speedway and I think it's Country Clubs we're going to do it on Wednesday. So kind of just talk about that history and kind of get a video version of it. So just thought I'd mention that. So the other the other uh, things in your article about Lou Davis were the subdivisions that he developed, and like other subdividers, uh, real estate guys, when they put together these large blocks of land, uh, family names came into mm-hmm. play. Chantilly, talk, mm-hmm. tell us about Chantilly or Tilly. So Chantilly, uh, many people are familiar with the street. If you're driving uh, eastbound on what is it, Broadway? I think it's Broadway. Mm-hmm. Going to Park Place, the light that you hit is Chantilly Drive. Not not a very common name, um, that. But everyone's familiar with that street. Right. So every, whenever I talk to someone, they're like, "Oh yeah, it's at Park Place." Or I say, "You know, Chantilly Drive." It's actually named for his wife's mother, uh, Chantilly Tilly Goldfinger. 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 <laughs> yeah, she went by Tilly. Uh, it was his wife's mother who had come over from Europe, and had um, just to survive. Had sold like antiques and stuff like that. So interesting lady. She had actually come over without her husband because her husband didn't have a birth certificate. So oh, he wow. couldn't Yeah, couldn't come to America. So she had to take care of her two da- their two daughters until he could come over later. Um, but it's a very well-known street. If you go to Park Place, you'll know Chantilly Drive. And then named uh, the subdivision where Chantilly's at, uh, Clara Vista. And that was a play on words because his, his mother, um, Clara... Davis had just died a couple months earlier. Right. So it was kind of a play on words, whereas it's called Clara Vista, but if you take the Spanish version, it's Clara Vista, which is clear view. Ah, the double play on words. It was a double play. So it was named in honor of his mother, and it was also, so his family knew that, but the average person buying a home would just go, oh, Clara Vista, clear view. What a beautiful name for a subdivision. So the subdivision itself, which is small, um, but it's still kind of interesting how he played on words. You know, and that so the family knew, but the average home buyer just thought it was clear view, you know, like clear view of the mountains or something like that. Oh. So I think Lou lived until he was 80, 
four, I think. Yeah, about there. And um, uh, his his uh, wife Salma died, I think, in twenty twelve or twenty o nine. Yeah, so um, year, so, years later. And, and Andrea, his daughter, lives in uh, in New Mexico. And mm-hmm. we emailed back and forth uh, after after I read your uh, your piece. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, it seems like a very nice lady, and and she was remembered by people in El Encanto, a neighborhood where where Mister and Missus Davis lived, uh, and she grew up as well. Uh, as as being you know a close friend of theirs. Yeah, and it, one of the nice things is, and I don't know if this has happened or not, but uh, Andrew Davis is supposed to donate um, the Lou Davis collection of papers and stuff to the U of A Special Collections. Um, so that was one of the nice things of tracking her down is she had all this stuff and didn't know what to do with it for her father. And I said, why don't you donate it to the U of A Special Collections so they have, you know, Great and idea. I don't know if it's happened yet because of COVID, but... Um, they should have Lou Davis's collection at the U of A Special Collections at least, at least at one point. Oh, that's, that's cool. Great to hear. So that was nice to see it get conserved because she didn't know what to do with it, and now she's living in New Mexico where nobody lo- know, knows Lou Davis. So, well, unfortunately, not too many people in Tucson know about Lou Davis. Uh, we've helped that a little bit, and yeah. uh, uh, this this man, Lou Davis, really was a great mayor. Yeah. And and somebody that uh, Tucson owes a debt of gratitude uh, to, and uh, I hope I hope as uh, that information is uh, at the U of A, others will come along and and do something with it. And uh, you know he played a, he played an important role in the in the heavy heavy development part of the city. And uh, I'm, yeah. I'm glad that you I'm glad that you wrote the article. Yeah, I was glad uh, I was glad we could preserve his history. I noticed like just looking at Wikipedia, for example, there's no article on him. Right. Many of the many of the mayors of Tucson do have articles, but he doesn't. So hopefully somebody will take the article and write a Wikipedia article because so many younger people use that as a source nowadays. Yeah. So yeah. accurate or inaccurate, I mean, they do use it. So yeah, yeah. Well, thanks very much. And you know, we're going to have you back on. I promised you before when I, when I learned about your um, uh, book about uh, Hughes and Raytheon, uh, wanted to have you on the show to oh. do a real full on long interview because Raytheon is such a critical part uh, of this town's history in the last half of the yeah. 20th century. Yeah, Hughes Aircraft, which later got bought out by Raytheon and stuff, was, definitely had a huge impact on Tucson. It changed Tucson to a large degree from a sleepy little town in 1950 to more of a technology-based town. So, All right. Well, we'll do it then. And until then, I know our producer is on the phone right now with our next guest who will get going. And we're going to take our bottom of the hour break. We'll be uh, hearing from Stephen Sokup uh, on the dictatorship of Woke Capital. We'll be right back. I'm proud to welcome my good friends at Tucson Iron and Metal Retail to Inside Track as an advertiser. Jamie Kipper and her staff are conservation experts. They sell round and square steel tubing, metal plate and roofing materials, as well as new and used steel, aluminum, and stainless steel to ranchers, artists, interior designers, roofers, and do-it-yourselfers, just like all the listeners here. Tucson Iron and Metal Retail is open Monday through Fridays, 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. and Saturdays, 8 a.m. to noon. Tucson Iron and Steel Retail, 701 East 36th Street, Call 520-209-1576 or go to tucsonironretail.com. And when you do call, mention this ad and receive an additional 10% discount on their already great prices. It's termite season. Hi, it's me. And 
bugs fear the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control. Go blue at Essential Pest Control. We'll eliminate those bugs, bees, and termites. And stop paying too much to that national provider. Buy local for great service and affordable rates. Call Essential Pest Control because termites fear the blue. <laughs> Call for the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control, 886-3029. That's 886-3029. Or check online at EssentialPest.com. I'm Eb Wilkinson with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. I don't ever want you to be dependent on government ever again. I want you to become financially independent. You will never, ever have to depend on socialist security for your survival. We are here to guide you to financial independence. That's IMUSWilkinson.com, 777-1911. That's 777-1911. Welcome back to Inside Track. Ebb's here. Bruce is here. Before we get to our next guest, uh, author of Dictator of Woke Capital. <laughs> you know, how many times have I done this, Ab? I, I, I blow the introduction, the dictatorship of woke capital. Uh, our guest, Stephen Sokup. Sorry, uh, Stephen. Yeah. Like, <laughs> do you have a home improvement project you want to get going on, but you're worried if you can afford the luxury you deserve? Corazon Cabinet sells top quality cabinets by J&K, Legacy, and Conestoga. Visit the Corazon crew at their new showroom located at 4700 South Park. Meet Joy, Allie, and David to see their fabulous collection and let them plan the kitchen or bath of your dreams. Call Corazon Cabinets at 488-2266. I'll be calling there because my wife and I are moving into a uh, new house we just bought, and they're going to completely redo our kitchen, our, our uh, laundry area, our storage areas, and they're going to do a fabulous job. They can get to work on beautifying your home in 2021. Corazon Cabinets, luxury you can afford. Okay, on to our special guest for the rest of the show, Stephen Sokup, author of a new bestseller, um, The Dictatorship of Woke Capital, How Political Correctness Captured Big Business. And let me just tell you a little something about Stephen before we uh, have him uh, talk to us here today. Stephen Sokup is a senior commentator, or actually is the senior commentator, vice president, and publisher of the Political Forum, an independent research provider that delivers research and consulting services to the institutional investment community with an emphasis on economic, social, political, and geopolitical events likely to have an impact on the financial markets in the United States and abroad. He is also the director of the Political Forum Institute, a not-for-profit educational organization dedicated to creating and preserving community, primarily amongst those who earn their living and create wealth for the American for America through capital markets. Welcome to Inside Track, Stephen. Uh, there was a significant event um, uh, which occurred um, to to create this woke capitalism. What was it? Well, uh, there's a history of uh, escalating events, uh, but the event I think you have in mind is the one that I discuss uh, in the book in 2019, uh, where the uh, right-of-center people of the state of Georgia elected a right-of-center legislature and a right-of-center governor uh, who went about enacting the will of the people uh, to restrict uh, abortion, to limit abortion uh, after a uh, fetal heartbeat can be detected. Mm. Um, 
which is you know, what legislators and uh, chief executives are supposed to do. Mm. Um, in response, uh, the entertainment community in particular, big business in general, but uh, entertainment in particular, uh, threw a fit. They stomped their feet and hollered and screamed and said, we don't want the people of Georgia to be able to govern themselves like this. Uh, we have a lot invested in doing business in Georgia, and we want the Georgians to do what, what we want them to do. Uh, so they threatened to pull uh, all of their projects uh, out of the state of Georgia. Uh, this was led in, in large part by uh, Bob Iger at Disney, who right. said, I just don't see how I can possibly uh, work in Georgia or how I could possibly get uh, the um, entertainers, the stars who are supposed to be in our movies to film in Georgia, uh, given uh, the political climate there. Um, the state of Georgia had spent two decades investing uh, in uh, the entertainment industry to draw the entertainment industry there. Uh, and 100,000, roughly 100,000 Georgians uh, had their careers, their, their livelihoods tied to the entertainment industry. So, so what this amounted to was the entertainment industry saying, hey, we don't like uh, what you people want to do with your democracy, uh, and so we're going to threaten the livelihoods of 100,000 of your neighbors uh, unless and until you do as we say. That's an extraordinary uh, event, and and I, I know when this happened. Uh, I'm not sure how many of our listeners knew that. Uh, it, it, and it really, it, I mean, it's 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 wholesale coercion is what that is. So that's part of your outside-in portion of this whole movement. Yes, absolutely. So um, if, if you can, before, before we go too far, talk about... What is the term ESG, and, and what, what is it? What does it mean? Okay. Um, I, I'll actually define, uh, before we get into ESG, I'll define what I mean by woke capital. Sure. Um, woke capital is uh, a top-down, uh, anti-democratic movement uh, on the part of some of the biggest and most powerful names in American business uh, to change uh, the function of business, uh, to change... Uh, the definition of capitalism, and to change a relationship between the citizen and the state. And, and you saw that in Georgia, uh, where these large corporations said, hey, we don't want for the democratic process to come up with policies that we don't like. Uh, and so they wish to go around the democratic process. Um, ESG is, is specifically a, an investment term, and it, it, it's a term that stands for environmental, social, and corporate governance investing. Uh, and it's probably the hottest trend uh, in investments uh, in the United States and certainly in Europe uh, over the past five years. Um, it is a uh, socially, it is what they call a socially responsible uh, investment uh, vehicle. Uh, whereby you can align your investments uh, with your values. Uh, the difference between ESG and traditional uh, socially responsible investing is that ESG is coercive. Uh, instead of simply allowing people to invest in companies uh, that do the type of things that they support and to screen out those companies that do the type of things that they don't support, ESG seeks to leverage the power of the wealth of the people who are invested in various funds uh, to change the behavior of companies, to force them uh, in line with certain political beliefs. Kind of like Coca-Cola saying, be less white. 
Well, yeah, I, I don't think Coke's uh, problems were uh, ESG related, but certainly that is something that could uh, happen, uh, you know, in this context. So, if ESG is so um, important to the left, we know that we know that uh, large investment funds, we know that uh, huge companies here in this country are heavily invested in China. Um, the stock market is filled with uh, investment in China and, and related to China. Um, why is it that the same groups who did what they did to Georgia and, and plenty of different companies, uh, Stephen, how come they're not as concerned about what happens in China environmentally as well as socially? Why, why doesn't it carry over to the problems that China is creating all across the globe? Well, I, 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 the bottom line, I believe, uh, is ego. Um, I spend uh, probably the first uh, 80 to 85 pages, roughly the first half of the book, uh, discussing the history of this uh, anti-democratic uh, movement, or this anti-democratic ethos uh, throughout American history, starting uh, in the late 19th century. Uh, and this is you know, a common thread that runs throughout our history, where we have a group uh, of very powerful, uh, very wealthy, very well-educated elites who believe that they can do things uh, that normal people cannot, uh, that they have unique gifts that allow them uh, and unique insights that give them the ability uh, to do things that other people simply couldn't. Um, and here I'm thinking specifically of Woodrow Wilson, who's one of the, one of the characters uh, that I identify in the beginning of the book. Uh, but we're also talking about Franklin Roosevelt uh, and uh, Teddy Roosevelt and most of the early progressive movement. Um, these are people who thought they could do things that were simply uh, irrational uh, to the outside observer. Uh, for example, at the end of World War II, when FDR thought that he could tame Stalin and, and make Stalin, Stalin basically his poodle. Uh, oh, that FDR actually out. believed that. <laughs> um, and I think that what we have today is the successors uh, to these people, to the successors to FDR and Wilson, uh, believing that they can tame the Chinese Communist Party, uh, that as long as they bring them into the system, get them into the system, that once they're there, they can change them. You know, my co-host, Eb Wilkinson, and I, Eb asked you a question a few seconds ago. Uh, Eb and I own our own businesses. Uh, we work hard to create profits and wealth for our partners and clients. Uh, we've used our wealth to help many causes. This is the wealth that we've created for ourselves. Uh, to help many causes which have a positive impact, we think, in our community and on our neighbors. Um, maybe we believe helping others in our world is noble, and maybe we do it because it gives us satisfaction. Um, I'm not sure the left would maybe appreciate you know, whether we're woke enough. But aren't these examples of ESG which are to be admired? I mean, ESG isn't necessarily a bad thing, is it? Well, ESG has a specific connotation uh, in the investment world. Um, and, and that connotation is uh, an investment strategy that pushes corporations uh, to use uh, corporate bylaws, corporate practices, uh, and corporate funds uh, to uh, attempt to achieve certain political goals. Um, 
the difference between that and what you're doing uh, is that you're you're performing acts of charity. Uh, you're performing uh, acts of your own goodwill. Uh, what the ASG movement does is it attempts to leverage. Uh, the power of the average investor uh, to take to usurp their shareholder rights and to leverage that power uh, in conjunction with a, a great deal of other asset management uh, firms uh, to force companies to behave in ways that are not necessarily universally accepted uh, as charitable. Um, so what would, what would those things be? Well, for example, um, the largest asset management firm in the world uh, with almost nine trillion dollars in assets under management is is blackrock mm-hmm. uh, and larry fink at blackrock has said specifically uh and repeatedly that he believes that uh his firm's most important investment directive over the next several years should be preparing the world and preparing companies for a zero carbon uh environment uh and forcing companies uh, to, to uh, not just achieve a zero-carbon plan, uh, but to account for that to all investors. Uh, so what he's doing is imposing his top-down uh, expectation for how uh, to deal with climate change uh, upon all of the companies uh, that it holds. And since uh, BlackRock uh, is a, a, a passive investment in ETF index fund firm, uh, it holds all companies. So it expects all companies to behave in this certain way and to achieve these certain ends as it directs. And it uses uh, our money, your money, my money, uh, to leverage uh, its power to force the companies to do this. Uh, Stephen, uh, this is Ev here. Uh, I see this in my business. I own an investment advisory firm. We constantly get hit up by people wanting us uh, to invest in their ESG uh, companies, uh, you know, ETFs, mutual funds. And I got to tell you, there is no way in hell that's going to happen. When I take, and I was telling Bruce earlier, look, the job of a publicly traded company's board of directors is to maximize shareholder value, not bend to the shareholder's will to do things other than that. That's number one. Number two, uh, you talk about in your book, Top Down, Bottom Up, Outside In. Uh, I remember back in 1992, uh, Charlton Heston stood up in front of Time Warner uh, at the shareholders meeting and read the lyrics of a company uh, distributed record in which rapper Ice-T talks about sodomy, sex, and Tipper Gore's nieces. And that was an example of you could call it outside in, uh, but he was trying to do the right thing by letting all the other shareholders know, look, this is what the company you're invested in is trying to do. Yeah, and and if uh, Charlton Heston had been able to persuade uh, a majority of shareholders to say, you know what, this is terrible, we need a change in management, then that would have been one thing. Uh, but that's not how ESG functions. Um, you know, BlackRock controls almost $9 trillion in assets. Uh, and that's, you know, that's money that uh, mom and pop and, uh, you know, Joe Sixpack have invested in their retirement, in their 401k, in their IRAs, whatever buys into uh, BlackRock's ETFs. Correct. Uh, and 
when BlackRock takes control of those funds, they also take control uh, of the shareholder rights uh, of the now owners of uh, the fund, because there is no mechanism uh, in place whatsoever for the owners of the fund to express their belief about how the fund's uh, shares should be voted and what it should be uh, doing to, to leverage its power with those funds. So BlackRock takes that wealth and it uses it for its purposes to advance its goals and in the process usurps all of the shareholder rights of the people who have bought into the fund. So it, it's a very, very uh, anti-democratic process uh, and, and denies you know, the overwhelming majority of, of shareholders in this country any right whatsoever to have any say at all in how their money is leveraged against corporations. And they're using the investors' money against them. Yeah, absolutely. That's crazy. It, it is. And so, so that's why I don't do ETFs, and that's why I don't do anything with BlackRock at all. I no. absolutely don't agree with their policies so, or, their, or their views. So obviously BlackRock is this huge blob of, of investments all across the globe. How, do you, how would one measure BlackRock's financial... I realize I may be going a little, a little off track here, but but bear with me, Stephen. Um, how does BlackRock's investment returns compare with other? I can't really say that there's similar um, uh, blob funds out there, but large investment funds are they are they at par or are they worse? Or are they better? How do the actual financial results look for BlackRock's overall investment returns? Well, that's. That's the catch in this, uh, in the timing of this particular move to uh, this investment uh, ethos. And that's uh, the fact that everybody makes money right now. You can't lose money right now uh, because of the availability of uh, uh, funds through the Fed. Um, the, The Fed has made... Uh, funds so readily available that it's almost impossible to lose anything. Mm. Uh, and then you look at the uh, the way most ESG funds are constructed, uh, and they don't look at all like environmental funds. They look like tech funds. Um, so what you have basically are tech funds that are earning tech fund returns in a period in which everybody's making positive returns. And so it's impossible to judge them uh, negatively based exclusively on returns. So BlackRock goes out and says, hey, look, you know, we beat the market last year. Um, we're doing great. Uh, our, the investors in our uh, ESG funds got, you know, alpha of, you know, three basis points or whatever. Uh, and, and they're right. Uh, but it has nothing whatsoever to do with ESG or with their investment uh, processes. It has to do with the environment uh, that we're in at the moment. So what are the most important issues and policy debates at stake right now in this climate of woke capital that you write about? I'm sorry, what are the most important issues and policy debates at stake right now in this, you know, period of time and uh, of woke capital? Well, I, I think we have uh, <laughs> the two most important ones uh, are whether or not uh, investors should have control uh, of their wealth that's invested uh, in 
the markets. And we just went through that with, you know, the way the ETFs uh, take the, the uh, shareholder rights uh, of the investors. The other one, I think, is uh, much more subtle uh, and probably every bit as dangerous and uh, going forward will be even more uh, traumatic uh, to the function of American capital markets. Uh, and that's the question of materiality. Uh, right now, we have a debate that's going on uh, in the SEC about how to treat um, sustainability uh, as it applies to various corporations. Um, the acting uh, chair of the SEC, Allison Heron Lee, uh, has proposed essentially changing uh, the materiality standards that have been in place since, I think, roughly 1947 uh, to make it uh, necessary for companies to report their progress on moving toward this you know, carbon-neutral uh, environment. Uh, so moving, she's, she's trying to inject, uh, you know, even if you believe it's an important political policy, she's trying to inject politics uh, directly into what had always been a financial calculation uh, and thus to change the definition of materiality, which I think uh, completely, under, completely undermines the very concept of materiality and, and, and would have uh, a long-lasting detrimental effect on markets generally, even after the ESG bubble is popped. So this is so interesting. You're saying that, uh, Stephen, that the federal government now, through the SEC, is going to really politicize corporate uh, uh, governance, correct? Yes. Wow. Do other, is this something that, that's happening in other parts of the world, in, in, the, in the EU and in Asia and elsewhere? Or is this unique to what we're doing here in the United States right now? Well, um, I, I think that it's probably taken place already uh, in the EU, uh, but the EU was, was never quite as uh, independently constructed uh, as our financial bureaucracy was, uh, there was never any uh, long-term concerted effort to keep to insulate the uh, financial bureaucracy uh, from uh, politics. Uh, but in this country, the the SEC and the Federal Reserve were always acknowledged, uh, if only tacitly, uh, by both parties. Uh, ever since the Great Crash, uh, that these were acknowledged to be apolitical um, uh, federal agencies. Um, and the fact that uh, one president or a president of the same party can only appoint, uh, you know, half of or just less than the majority of um, the commissioners on the SEC is proof that we wanted this to remain a nonpartisan uh, body, uh, but that's not the way it's going to go. Um, you know, after the election uh, in November, in my first uh, note to clients, uh, my uh, prediction was uh, that Biden's, Joe Biden's presidency would be very tame on the surface, that it would not be a radical leftist presidency, as so many people feared, but that it would be a perfectly normal 
uh, presidency with one exception, and that's the politicization of the SEC and the Federal Reserve. And I think we've seen that already with the SEC, and the Federal Reserve is only a step behind it. So, David, um, so David we have one minute, or excuse me, Steve, we have one minute remaining. What can average citizens do to fight back against world capital? Most important thing is to understand what's happening. Uh, why it's happening and who's doing it. And then the second most important thing is to take back what is yours. Uh, Take back the invested wealth that you have uh, that others might be leveraging for uh, political purposes. Take that back. Take control of your wealth. Well, I will tell you this, uh, Stephen. I learned more from this interview today than I ever expected to get when when we set this up. And I had a completely different view of what we were going to talk about. This has been fascinating. Where can people get your book? Um, you can get you can get the book just about anywhere. Um, generally, I tell people to get it at uh, EncounterBooks.com, the publisher. Uh, but if you have a sense of irony and want to buy it from Amazon, uh, given that Amazon is one of the companies I highlight uh, in a chapter in the book, uh, you can do that as well. So uh, you can buy it just about anywhere. Well, thank you, Stephen. I'll definitely pick up a copy. Uh, friends, we hope, uh, we hope you enjoyed our interview with Stephen, uh, Stephen Sokup, and hope you'll buy his book, The Dictator of Woke dictatorship of woke capital which is available just about anywhere everywhere as he said uh thanks again Stephen. great having you on the show and thanks to arizona daily star street smarts columnist david layton for joining us today and sharing some of the rich history of our hometown we have another great show for you next week when we'll talk about the national pastime on the eve of the 2021 major league baseball season with former mlb star and uh, major league channel uh analyst billy ripkin also former Cincinnati Reds pitcher um, Pat Darcy and uh, George uh, Jajen will be with us for a great show and tune in to the Wake Up Tucson show Tuesday morning when I share Passover treats with Christy Simone one last thing, Eb and I will be rooting later today for WAC conference champs Grand Canyon University to beat the Iowa Hawkeyes until next Saturday, this is Bruce Ash and Eb Wilkinson wishing you a very pleasant good afternoon Customers come first at Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. A lot of the the cities and counties around have initiatives for artists. I think we're one of the premier artist suppliers for steel. First Saturday of every month, you can come down early and actually go through the scrapyard across the street. It's seven acres of metal. You can walk through with our people and pick out what you want. It's always interesting to see what the artists have done. We've done uh, actually a couple projects with the U of A engineering department and music department where the engineering music students came down together. They had to pick something out of the scrap and uh, they had to build an instrument. And we have one of those in front of the plant. Some really cool things come out of the scrap. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus.